Today's scripture reading comes from Judges, chapter 3, verses 12 to 31. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. (coughs) And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're carrying on. Well, good morning, everybody, by the way. And we're carrying on in the book of Judges into chapter 3, and... um, I always make my wife read the parts that are the most brutal um, <laughs> or awkward for her, um, <laughs> is the book of Judges. So uh, let's jump in. Chapter three of the book of Judges has three different judges in it. It has Othniel, then Ehud, and then Shamgar is mentioned briefly. So when you read this chapter, and it gives five verses to, to Othniel, 18 or 19 verses to Ehud, and one verse to Shamgar, who do you think the author wants us to pay attention to? Right? And this is one of the great questions of the book of Judges. 
Why is it that we're drawing attention to six of the 12 and that the sometimes the six not only get worse and worse as the story goes on, but it's pretty brutal? Why not spend more time talking about Othniel? Just for the record, how many of you, when you as kids in Sunday school, learned about all the judges? And, and who remembers Othniel versus Samson? Which one do you come away remembering? So you remember the scoundrel, but you don't remember, because you're never taught, Othniel, the one good judge. And that's pretty normal, sadly. But here when we read about Ehud, this wonderful story, and I say wonderful because it's a good yarn. It's a good story. And it's full of everything from brutality and drama to humor and satire. It's clear whoever's writing this wants to embarrass the king of Moab. And it's a great story, but one of the things you have to really pay attention to is the fact that he's left-handed. Left-handed is the key to understanding why this story is here and what we're to get out of it. And left-handed people, if you don't know, um, how many lefties are in the room? It's a pretty number. Ooh, there's a vocal minority. Um, <laughs> so the thing about lefties is there's only about 10% of the population are lefties. And Historically, lefties have been mocked, discriminated against terribly, and you see it in everyday language all the time. So, if you're clumsy, what do you have? Two left feet, right? Not two right feet, two left feet. If, uh, if you're, let's, let's imagine I was to go up to my wife, which I would never do, but what if I did and said, you know what, that dress really makes you look thin. That's a left-handed compliment, isn't it? So the suggestion is you're not really thin, but the dress makes you look thin. See, it's a left-handed compliment, not a right-handed one, left-handed. Um, the, the Greek, or the, sorry, the, the Latin words for right is dexterous, which means skilled, good, able, uh, competent. The, right, the, the word for left in Latin is the word sinister, right? Not just that. If you are in different parts of the world, if you were in Hungary, for instance, and you had bad luck, they wouldn't call it bad luck, they call it left luck. You have left luck. If you're in Russia and you have a bad day, you woke up on the left side of the bed in Russia, uh, which is another interesting comment. Did you know if you were in the Middle East, in many places, it's an insult, and in Islam, in, in, in Muslim uh, nations, it's an insult to pick up and eat with your, with your left hand. So if you go there, it's often suggested you pretend to be ambidextrous. You pretend. Because your left hand, if you pick up food, it's an insult. Um, have you noticed that when you swear an oath, what hand do you put on the Bible? The right hand. When you want to shake hands, it's the right hand. If somebody comes to the left, you don't even know what to do with that guy, right? So it's the right hand. And of course, the reason was, you shake a hand with the right, and in the ancient world, so few people were left, you know that guy's not going to stab you, because the idea was he, he's showing your hand, and the hand means it's, it's, not, it's not armed, okay? Of course, Ehud would have a good opportunity there, wouldn't he? Um, also, look at what the Bible says. What hand does God bless with? Right hand. Where is Christ seated? The right hand of the Father. Uh, at judgment, I'm sorry, lefties, sheep are on the right, goats are on the left. It just keeps going and going and going. And so we can't ignore the fact that when we hear that Ehud is a lefty in the ancient world, it is not so, it's not just a throwaway fact. They didn't have to tell you that. So it sets up not just what he does with his hand later when he stabs Aegon, but there's something more going on with his left-handedness. In fact, when you look at this story carefully, you realize the entire story comes out of left field. Oh, look what I did there. See what I did? See what I did? 
because the whole, <laughs> poor lefties. Uh, so the whole story does seem to come out of left field. And that's, rather than run from it, let's embrace it. And parts of the story are actually so well crafted that you miss the parts that are supposed to make you think, hold on, there's something wrong here. Because it sometimes is funny. Let's face it, it is funny that the servants wait till the king is done on the toilet. They're not sure what's going on, so they wait. And you can imagine those poor servants, right? Like, at what point do you interrupt the king? Like, I want, so it's meant to be funny, so let's embrace it. But the, that, that humor and the satire and the brutality mask you from something that God is doing in Ehud and why he is using this weird, deceptive sort of guy. So, three things we're going to look at today. We're going to look at something is expected, something is unexpected, and then we're going to expect the unexpected. <laughs> okay? So you're going to see as we move from there. The story shows us something that is expected, something very unexpected, and then we're going to see what is going on with all these unexpected things that are happening. So first, the expected. Now, a lot of predictable elements pop up in this story. And Janet mentioned one earlier. It's the cycle. Remember that cycle seven times in the book of Judges? It says, or actually eight. It says, um, and, Israel, and the people of Israel again did what was wicked, uh, evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's how this story starts. So the cycle begins. So that's expected. You know, you're get, it's only chapter three, but you're already in the rhythm. You know that that's coming. Um, for Israel and the people of God, much like that song, prone to wander, though I feel it, oh Lord, I feel it, is um, for the people of God, sadly, idols are always more beautiful than God. It's just the sad, tragic story of the church and of humanity is that we're always seeking another idol. And it's not just physical idols here. In fact, something we won't talk about, but if you come Tuesday morning, you would get, is, and we, we don't have the time, but it's, it's one of these interesting facts. Ehud can deliver them from oppression, but notice that the idols remain. When he goes past the idols in Gilgal, he goes and delivers the people, but the idols are left to stay in Israel. And this is the problem, is that we want relief from our circumstances, but we don't want relief from our idolatry, usually. And that's one of the tragic things. But it's what we're getting used to seeing this in Israel. The idols persist always through here. Another uh, common thing is God's compassion. This is expected now. We're in, only in chapter 3, and we're already expecting that God will save Israel, though they don't really want him, they just want relief. And his compassion is becoming expected. Another thing that is interesting that you're going to see all through the book of Judges and why it's so relevant today is the breakdown of the family. Family units break down. You see, at first it begins with the tribes, and when the tribes break down, the families begin to break down. That's what the story will slowly devolve into. You go from chapter 1, where the tribes are falling apart, into these stories now, where slowly you're going to see them falling apart to the point where Jephthah will sacrifice his daughter and where people are going to be killing each other. It's just going to be a mess. And the way you see it here in this book is by the presence of the Moabites. You see, Moab is not in Canaan. And so why are they involved in this battle for the, for the conquest of the land of Canaan? They don't belong there. The Moabites, if you know, are the descendants of Lot. So they are cousins to Israel. So their very presence here is showing Israel cannot survive peacefully with themselves. When God is abandoned, they abandon everything. And so this is a subtle example here that they can't, they can't live with one another without God. And it's a common, we're expecting it. It's common, you're going to see, it just keeps happening. Another interesting expected aspect is losing, losing ground. Israel, since the book of Joshua, continues to lose what God gave them. And here we hear about this coalition. The Moabites grab their buddies from the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they invade 
Israel. And one, the only city we're told they take is the city of Palms, which if you know your Old Testament, city of Palms is the city of Jericho. So when we hear that they take Jericho, your ears should perk up. Because if you recall in Joshua 6, Israel destroys it. And then at Joshua 6, 26, Joshua utters a curse and says, anyone who dares rebuild the foundations or the walls of the city, let them lose their children, firstborn and so on. So there's a curse on the city. So when we hear that the foreigners have now retaken Jericho, you should be asking questions because the place that was the symbol of God's faithfulness and Israel's faithfulness, because if you remember, Joshua had to show a great deal of faith to march around a city and then yell as a military strategy. And when that is then taken by the enemy, you're supposed to think, oh my goodness, is the conquest being reversed? Is the exodus reversing already? And so this is something you're going to hear continually. And we saw it in chapter 1. They're losing ground. It's expected. This is the routine. One of the expected aspects of this story of Ehud. Next one is the severe oppression. And the satire misleads you a little bit because you end up, you know, it starts with them saying Ehud is, a, or sorry, Eglon is a meod, meaning very great. God is referred to as being meod at times, great in power, great in mercy. But this man is great in fatness. And not just that, the intention is you're supposed to see that he's being made fat off the tribute of Israel. Because tribute in those days, Israel was a member, a loose connection of tribes. They don't have a central bank. They don't even have, even the tabernacle, they don't have, uh, well, you don't see the tabernacle being used here at all. And they don't have a, a treasury. So what they're probably bringing is produce. And so here you have this satire. You have this gullible, big, chubby king who's willing, and then he dies in his own feces. It's meant to mock him. But in that, you may miss something. Eglon, caricature though he may be, he dominates Israel for 18 years. He is not an idiot, right? And you can miss that sometimes. In the ancient world, to subdue a people for 18 years is not simple. It's not something an idiot can do. So Israel is being severely oppressed to the point of where they cry out okay, to God. So these things are all routine. We expect to see all this. This part... There need no ghost come from the grave to tell us that these are parts of the story. But what is interesting is when things you start to look at the parts that are unexpected. Um, so we mentioned God's grace. So the first thing about this unexpected, God's grace is both expected and unexpected. It's expected because God is gracious. It's unexpected because he doesn't demand that they repent before he forgives them. Now, I'm not talking salvation here. I'm talking pulling them out of their circumstances. But he doesn't save them from their trouble when they repent. His mercy is such that he is willing to save them even when they don't really want him because he's gracious and he's good. And so that's expected because he does it all the time, but it's unexpected because he shouldn't do it. We don't deserve it. So that's one unexpected. But more, I don't say more, more, more clear in the story is how, who he saves with Ehud, and how he does it, the method. Those two things are incredibly unexpected, and they're there for a reason. So first, let's consider, who is Ehud? And while you're thinking about this, while you're reading it, um, oh, don't put that up there yet. That doesn't go up there. We'll get there. When you get to, to Ehud, um, you have to ask yourself this question, and in your community groups, you're going to be doing this. Does God approve of Ehud? Because nowhere in the story does it say God approves of him. It just says he raises him up. We don't even hear that Ehud has any faith 
All, the closest thing we get is in verse 28 when he says, the Lord has given them into your hands. That's the only mention or hint we get of his faith. So we're trying now to figure out, does God, like, who, is he using a judge who is a good guy? Remember also that in Hebrews, when the Hebrews writer talks about the, these great men of faith and he talks about the judges, he never mentions Ehud. So what are we to make of Ehud? Does God approve or not? And while you're doing that, let's look at the story. First thing that's unexpected is he is a Benjamite who's left-handed. Benjamin means the son of the right hand. So for him to be a lefty is right away interesting, right? And when we hear he's left-handed, here's another fascinating fact. It doesn't say he's left-handed. The Hebrew says he is restricted in the right arm. He could have said left-handed. There's other ways to say left-handed. In fact, in 1 Chronicles, it talks about the Benjamites having an army of, le- of guys who can shoot bows and swing rocks um, using both hands. And it says left and right. But here they choose to say he's restricted in the right hand. So we have two options. Is Ehud crippled in the right hand? In which case, if he was, he'd be un- they wouldn't expect a crippled guy to be a danger to the king, right? So is that what's going on? Well, probably not, because later in the book of Judges, it's going to say that the Benjamites have an army of men restricted in the right hand. And with all due respect, nobody's making an army of cripples, because it would be foolish. So what it looks like is going on is that common to a lot of places in the world, especially in the ancient world. Uh, I think they still do it in some places today. I won't say the country, so I'm not positive. They'll restrict your arm. They'll restrict you. If you're, some place, they'll make it so if you're left-handed, they'll bind it, so you have to use your right to force you to be right-handed. But it looks like the Benjamites may have been a tribe that was breeding left-handed warriors because they do it later, and they seem to, and in fact, in Chronicles as well, it's always Benjamites who are left-handed warriors. So were they binding kids and raising them to be left? Now, the answer as to why that is is very practical. First, if you know anything about boxing, you know left-handers are southpaws, and it's a lot harder to fight them because they're coming at you from a different spot. If you've played baseball, a left-handed pitcher is challenging, and they always, they're always uh, valuable and desired. Um, and in the case of wars in the ancient world, when you had a gate in a city that leads into the city, it wasn't usually like in the movies, just a big gate that opened and closed. It was usually a complex. It was thick, and it, and it had a tunnel. So you had to walk around because they don't want an army just to march right into the city. So oftentimes, there was turns. And what they did was they had the first turn to your right, because most warriors are right-handed, in which case my shield is on my left. So if I'm turning this way and I'm against the wall, I can't swing. So it's a strategic move. But if you're a left-handed warrior, ah, now it's more valuable. And so it looks like Ehud is this trained warrior, trained to use the right hand, or his left hand, I beg your pardon. So, we don't know for sure, but that seems to be what's going on here. One way or the other, the left-handed thing is important. Now, we ask this question. In the story, as things begin to fall in place for Ehud, everything goes just as he's hoping. Is that because he's crafty and deceptive, or is it because God is orchestrating events on his behalf, or both? We don't know, right? We don't, we're not told. And some people will adamantly think, Carl, you're crazy. Of course God's doing that. He's sovereign. And of course, God is sovereign. But is God approving of everything Ehud does? Because his methods are not godly. And God never otherwise approves of this sort of behavior. But let's look at what happens. First, again, the satirical nature of the story, the comedy, makes you not realize the problems in it. 
One of them, he's a tribute bearer. So he's a guy whose job is to take the money from Israel and the tribute and escort it to the king. So it means he has to be diplomatic, but he also has to be pretty strong and ruthless because in the ancient world, when you're walking for thousands of kilometers, or hundreds at least, and you're bringing riches with you, you can expect people to want to take it. So Ehud has to be shrewd and a diplomat. Um, He then crafts this dagger, and he shapes it for himself. It says it's a cubit. Uh, We talked about this on Tuesday. The the Hebrew word isn't cubit. It's a word gomed, which means under 12 inches, not 18. We use cubit because that was ancient, an old way of uh, archaeology. But now that we know a gomed was something smaller, we're looking at like a dagger he's fashioned for himself. Not just any dagger. You can get your mind thinking. It's a dagger that is double-edged. Not just double-edged, it says double-mouthed. It's almost as if this sword is there to receive and drink the blood of Eglon. So he shapes this dagger and he fastens it probably to the inside of his right thigh because you get patted down. In the ancient world, they're not going to touch the nether regions. So it's safer in there. Now, you know something's going on, right? When you read this part of the story, it's not normal for a man to first have the dagger and make one, a custom-made one for something, and then to conceal it. Once he conceals it, you know something is going on. So this deceptive nature of this, you know, God has used up to this point in Israel's history, Moses, Aaron, and Joshua. None of them was deceitful. If they had a problem, they went directly to the issue in an honorable way. So when God now raises up a leader who is willing to use underhanded tactics, it ought to raise questions as to why, what's going on, what is God doing? He goes the first time and he visits uh, and he gives the, the tribute to Eglon and then he leaves and comes back. Why did he go the first time? Was he going because he wanted to do this alone, so he left and came back after his, his entourage left? Or is he going to case out the joint to see, okay, this is what I'm going to have to do when I come back? We don't know. All we know is he leaves and he comes back. Interesting that it says he turns back at the idols. Interesting. Is it repentance? Sorry, that's too nerdy maybe. But there's something going on there. But then more. He shows up in the second visit and he lies. I have a thing for you, he says. I have this, this davar, which means word, but it can also mean a thing. I have something for you. And Eglon is gullible and says, yes, yes, everybody leave. Everybody leave. I want to get this thing, this secret message from God. So he goes. Ehud obviously knew the king was susceptible to this sort of thing. He then gets up from to hear and receive this message, and the thing he gets is the dagger instead. Now, when the dagger goes in, if you spend any time studying true crime or psychology, you know that most murders that occur with a knife are shallow cuts because it's passion. Like you're quick, you're, it's fear, it's, it's self-defense. When somebody is found with a, with a wound where their head is cut off or there's a deep blow, every psychologist and criminal investigator knows that means anger. Only angry people do that sort of thing. So we're left to wonder, is Ehud, what's, is he a normal guy? Is he angry? Because he really drives this thing in. And then he leaves it in. Now, does he leave it in because it's stuck or because he doesn't want the blood to come out? We don't know. We just know it's stuck in there. Is it, and the comedy of the, of the blubber boy coming over the blade, right? So we don't know. But these questions that we have to ask, we don't know. There's not enough information given to us. Then he locks the doors so we know he knows what he's doing. And he leaves. And with this story, we have to ask, does God approve? Why is God using this method when he doesn't have to? 
Why does he spend more time talking about Ehud instead of Othniel? If, if, if the goal is to provide us models of behavior, why Ehud? All these questions, all these unexpected things, and it gets even more puzzling when we look at how. Because first there's deception and humiliation, we've talked about that, but then there's this thing about the sword itself. In the book of Judges, something is happening. The author seems intent on drawing your attention towards the weapons that these people use to save Israel. And they're almost always improvised weapons or fashion. They're unorthodox. Ehud uses a custom-made dagger. Shamgar, who we just read about, uses an ox goad, meaning that stick with a point on it to, push the, to tell the ox where to go. Okay? Jael, in a, in next week we'll hear, uses a tent peg to kill Sisera. Gideon will use a jar with a torch, you know, flame inside it. A woman who kills Abimelech in chapter 9 is going to drop a millstone on his head. And then Samson uses the jawbone of a donkey. Why is it that we're being, our attention is being drawn to improvised and unorthodox weapons all through the book? All of these things are coming out of left field, right? It's just so different. It's just so weird. And this is why we read Judges, and usually we just, we just think it's great stories, and we tell our kids the good parts. We don't tell them about the dung coming out, um, which my kids would probably find funny. But we don't tell them that. And, but when we look at it, God, the author and God is doing something here. And here's where we move to the last point about expecting the unexpected. Because we want answers. We want to know why Ehud, right? We want to know why is it done this way. And Judges is, in this case, from here on, is very silent. You don't learn a lot of those answers. You're left to sit there and stew about it and think about it. And one of the reasons we really want answers is because we, and I've said this before from the pulpit, humans hate unpredictability. We hate the unexpected, and those are two different things. God is unexpected at times, but he's not unpredictable. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But we want predictability, and if we can't find predictability, we'll make it. And so we will, for instance, the FBI, when they're looking for serial killers back in the 70s, one of the things they did is they grabbed all these serial killers and they started investigating them and said, we need a profile of a killer so that we can identify who these people are, where they strike, why they strike, and maybe we can prevent crimes. So they develop a profile. In fact, there's shows now about profilers, right, who do this. They seem like clairvoyants. They can say, oh, this happened in the park. This person must be this sort of a person, and they find them. And we love to profile people, but if you take the book of Judges and you take Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and you try to make a profile, you're out of luck. Because some are strong, some are weak, some have faith, some have none, some are women, some are men, some are, are devious, some are honorable. There's, it's just a nightmare. You, it's, you can't come up with a profile. And that really galls us because we want a God who we can understand, who we, who we can expect the expected from. We don't like the unexpected usually from him. And one of the reasons that we think of God as being unpredictable, though he's not, but we think of him that way is because Carl Truman is a philosopher and a teacher, a prof, says this, because God is omnipotent, he appears from a human perspective to be unpredictable. Now, he appears to be unpredictable. That's an important word, so I'm glad Truman put it up there. He appears to be unpredictable because he may do as he pleases and he doesn't require your opinion or your approval. And as a result, because he is so beyond, he'll often use methods that to us Make, him, make us think he's unpredictable. 
But that's not the case at all, right? But because we don't, we want to know, Carl, what will God do? Why is God taking a baby from a parent? Why is it some people die in car accidents, some don't? And they want some sort of an answer from me and from the Bible that will make them feel better. And the difficult thing is the Bible says very clearly, God is sovereign. He knows what he is doing. You do not, and you may not always understand it. In fact, if he's sovereign and if he is infinite, you should expect to not understand him unless you are sovereign and infinite. So that, but that is hard for us to understand, right? And so what we end up doing is we create a predictable God. We develop doctrines and we develop stories and we write nice books and we, put, we embroider things on curtains and on pillows that make us feel better when life seems unpredictable. And yet, I love the songs that Janet chose today and the team chose because they tell us exactly what you can predict about God. He is faithful. He is strong. He is good. So all of our seeming unpredictability, that we, where we read unpredictability in God's actions, it's not unpredictable. He's not wild. He's not, he's not just making things up as he goes. But Judges does this, right? And this is a problem for us. We often fixate so much on how God is going to save that we forget that he will save. The, the example I would use is Revelation. Remember we did Revelation, and even to this day, it doesn't matter if you preach it or not, there's always going to be people who will use Revelation as a book that helps them understand how God will save. How's God going to show up in the end times? And the reason we do that is because I don't want to be caught off guard. I want to know how God's going to come. And it's good that we focus to an extent, but sometimes we can spend so much time looking at the blood moons that we forget to see that the point of the book is to say, God is saving you. He will save you. He is faithful to do it. And your job is not to figure out how. That's God's job. Yours is to trust that he will save. And so when in the book of Judges, you see here and all through it, that we are left with God stripping away and demanding. He's, he's basically pulling your faith down to the foundations. And he is saying, you cannot predict how I am going to save you, so stop trying. What you can predict is I will save you. Israel, no matter what happens, I will not let you go. As far as trying to figure out how, boy, you can't do it. Judges shows us that. Now, why is he showing us that? It's to prepare you for Christ. Because Christ is going to come and not the way you expect him to come. And it's not just in the, in the manger. The first century Jews, of course, we see how they misunderstood who the Messiah was because they had expectations. What they, but even today we're having that same problem where we expect God to be a certain way and God is saying, stop it. Your job is to stop worrying about how I'm going to save exclusively. Start thinking about that I will save. Praise me for saving. Trust and plant your gardens and serve your world knowing that I will save you no matter what happens. And this is a, we have, sometimes we have to get pulled back to that level. Because when Christ shows up, he shows up as a lamb, not a lion. Not the way you're expecting. He shows up not as a conqueror, but executed. He comes as, as a criminal, as a prisoner. He comes not to unify, but to divide. And if you are looking for a certain kind of judge, a certain kind of Messiah... When, you're looking, when Christ shows up, you may very well miss him. It's one of the things I, I'm terrified about when I read the, the Pharisees, because I would be a really good Pharisee. And I worry that sometimes we think we know God so well that we miss him when he shows up. And it's, it's tough, right? Because you have to know him. He has attributes. There's things we can know about him. You have to know what he is and who he is so that you can reject the lies. And yet at the same time, he's infinite, so be very careful. 
So there's this balance we have to always be holding up. And so, as it's easy, let me use this example as well for us modern types. We often have, I often have skeptics and even Christians say, well, why? Why is this happening? Why? And I understand these questions. Why would it, he, did he, does he save some and not others? Um, why does he use the church? Skeptics, you're right to ask this question. Why would he use us? We are judges, right? The world looks at us and says, they're no better than us, right? They're scoundrels, they're lying, they're cheating, they're stealing. And so the question is legitimate. Why would he choose to use this? to be his vehicle of communicating his goodness and his grace and his gospel. And these questions are important. Why would he use the cross? Why would he use a bloody uh, a, a ritual like this to save the world? All fair questions. But if you're a Christian, the answer is this. You always look at scripture. Let it tell you who God is, not anything else. And we have to continually come back to this point. Your experiences don't always tell you who God is. Your traditions don't always tell you who God is. Your, uh, the fictions we make up, in fact, this week I spoke with the, our seniors at the Evergreens, and I drew attention to this heaven tourism sort of book, where people claim they had a near-death experience, and they talk about what they saw in heaven. Stop reading that nonsense if you're a Christian. Stop it. The Bible's very clear. No one ascended to heaven and came back except for Christ. So no one is dying and getting a vision of heaven where they see the devil walking through heaven and he's all knobbly need, one of them says. Um, this is nonsense. Stop looking to things outside of Scripture to know who God is. This is one of the things the judges is doing. It's ripping us back. It's saying, embrace the God who will confound you. He will. Stop pretending. Stop looking to, to always cage him. So that's one, but even important to that too as a Christian, look at your life. If you look at your life honestly, don't you see the marks of a left-handed God? Don't you see a God who used unorthodox things to save you and to bring you out of where you were and how continues to save you through ways you'd never expect? In different other... This left-handed God is our God. We can't pretend he doesn't exist. Embrace it. Marvel at the God who won't be chained, who can't be stopped from saving you. That's an incredible... We should be falling on our faces at this idea. No matter what we do, he will save us if we are his. If you're a skeptic, this is even harder, I think, maybe. Because as a skeptic, and I had to face this when I was one, are you willing to be humiliated? Are you willing to admit that the God and the church that you mocked, and it's not about making us feel better, but are you willing to say, I was wrong. I was looking for a certain kind of God who would be all love, airy-fairy God, the God who would never judge me. That's what I was looking for, and I was wrong. There is humiliation in becoming a Christian because you have to confess that you've been wrong your whole life. And as Christians, we have to continue to confess we're wrong all the time. And that is hard. But are we willing to do it? Are we willing to look and see that the God of the Bible is not a two-dimensional God? He's not a cookie cutter. He's not a madame home. Sorry, you know, those homes that all look the same in Milton, you know? Uh, that's not who he is. He's not our Sunday school God who is good and bad, this dualistic, Gnostic version of God. He's complex. He's completely unexpected, but entirely predictable, at least in what matters, which is he will never let you go. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. You weren't saved by your good works and you won't be unsaved by your sin. It's very simple. If your sin could have, if, if your good works made you a Christian or your cleverness because you realized he was good while your neighbor didn't, then you'd have to worry about what happens when I let go. And I'll close just lastly with very 
simple story about this goodness, this greatness of God. And it was when, uh, during the Reformation, there was three uh, Protestants who were going to be burned at the stake in France. And um, they heard that all the brilliant guys in the Reformation were getting together to talk about, uh, about eternal security. Am I, saved as, am I sure that I'm saved as a Christian? And they sent a letter to John Calvin. And the letter they sent to Calvin said, we don't know what you guys are going to decide, but please don't tell me I'm not saved in spite of myself. Please tell me election is real. And, they, and the reason they put was this. When we're being burned at the stake, when the flames are devouring my flesh, I may renounce God because I'm dying. They needed to know that no matter what they were going through, no matter what they said, that God's hold on them was tighter than their hold on God. If you can't, if you can't relate to that story, then I don't know what to do for you. Life is such that you and I will renounce God at some point, even if it's for a moment in our heads. And we need to know that he is holding us so tightly that in spite of us, he won't let us go. That is what we're being told in this story. He is unexpected. Don't try to predict everything. Just try to realize he'll save. He will save. He will save. That's who he is. Let's pray.